0: Uh, My name is Matt Ritchie. I'm the next-gen pastor here, and it's my joy to share with you uh, today. Pastor Keith is traveling back, and I'm grateful you guys showed up because usually when word leaks out that Pastor Keith is gone. Pastor Keith is gone and the backup is there. Y'all like go camping, but I'm glad you showed up. So we're going to dive into Romans 6. We're in the series, uh, Romans, uh, we're calling it People of the Gospel, Romans 6. Uh, Let me start with a story, though, to try to set up what we're talking about today. In 1994, there was an unathletic, uh, overweight high school student who had the dream of playing college football. Um, I also had that dream, but at 4'11", it never worked out. But he actually was big enough, he weighed like 300 pounds when he graduated. And he was big enough that they thought he could get a scholarship to some smaller colleges in his region. He lived in the state of Arkansas and uh, he had grown up there his whole life and he wanted to play college football, got some scholarship offers to some smaller schools, but he wanted to play for the University of Arkansas Razorbacks. And there was no change in his mind. He had his heart and mind set on it. So he decided to attend the University of Arkansas and just walk on to the team. They didn't offer him a scholarship. And uh, the coach there said, you're not quite um, good enough. We already have players. But he said, you know what? Like, you're welcome to walk on and, and do your best Try out for the team. So Brandon was this student's name. Brandon, he, he decided that he was going to try it. So he went to his coach and he said, you know, what do I have to do to, get to make the team. Now, Brandon possessed a, an interesting quality that I think all of us would do well to have. And he, he was able to trust people and he was willing to do whatever his high school coaches had asked him to do. He followed their instructions to the letter. In fact, his high school coach told his college coach when he recruited him, he said, you better tell Brandon to do it the right way because whatever you tell him to do, he will do it exactly how you tell him to do it. So if you instruct him wrong, he's gonna do it wrong. But if you tell him what to do the right way, he's gonna do it the right way. And that's what Brandon did. He worked hard on it. And they told him, they just told him right up front, you're going to have to lose some weight. You're going to have to get in the weight room. You're going to have to eat right. You have to work hard in school. You're not getting your school bill paid like the rest of these guys on the team. You're going to have to you know, figure out a way to get your school bill paid for. You can't get in trouble. You have to do all this stuff and from the spring to christmas brandon lost about 50 pounds he did everything the coaches asked him to do and then he got back in the weight room and they put him on a different diet and he built his body back up to that original 300 pounds but it was all muscle now brandon was a quiet head down hard-working guy in fact he was uh, so Uh, He was so hard working that he didn't hardly hang out with the rest of the team, and some of the guys on his team later said they didn't even remember him as a freshman being in the locker room, but he was there, and it took some time, but he eventually earned a scholarship. And he didn't just earn a scholarship, he became a starting offensive guard and in his senior year he was actually voted to be an All-American offensive guard and he was considered one of the best offensive linemen in the country. And he was actually drafted by the Indianapolis Colts in the third round of the NFL draft in the 1998 draft. If you've seen the movie Greater, this story probably sounds familiar to you because they made a movie out of Brandon Burlsworth's story. And the reason that they did that is because of not only his work ethic and what he was able to accomplish, but there was a tragedy at just the age of 22 on the way home from his very first NFL mini camp, where by the way, his coach said he was going to start as a rookie on day one of the season. He was that good. He was tragically killed in a car accident. And so we never got to see Brandon play, but today his legacy lives on through the Burlesworth Foundation, benefiting underprivileged kids in the state of Arkansas. And the Burlesworth trophy is given to the top college football player in the country each season who begins his career as a walk-on, a nobody, but works himself into a scholarship and a starter and a high level player. So Brandon Burlesworth, lives on today through his legacy. And I'm told he's a, he was a person of faith, which makes this story even cooler. And we know where he is today with his faith in Christ. But what I wanted to point out from his life is that he possessed this quality. He trusted his coaches and he was willing to do whatever they asked of him. Some of you who may have grown up in church, I was a pastor's kid, so I heard this song a lot growing up. There was a song that we would sing, it would simply say trust and obey for there's no other way. Anybody know that song? I'm not gonna sing it, but (laughs) trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Well, Brandon did that. His coach said, you know what? I don't know if you're a football player or not, but if you'll trust me and you do what I say, we'll find out. Well, the difference between Brandon's football story and our spiritual story is that our heavenly father knows exactly what our potential is but the message is the same he said if you'll trust me and you'll be and you'll commit to just follow my instructions I promise you you will realize the purpose for which you were created you will have success in this life and and most importantly the next if you'll just commit to trust me and obey And in Romans 6, where we're going to pick this up, Paul addresses some tension that the early church was facing. And we've, just to give you a brief recap, in the first few chapters of Romans, Paul has gone to great lengths to show the importance of the need for our restoration. And by the way, just a side note, there's a lot of brokenness across our culture. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of things that are wrong in our world, and we are really good at addressing the system, uh, the symptoms, whether it be through our government or through our policy or through legislation or what have you. But I'm convinced that our problem is a heart condition. It's a, it's a heart condition. And as individuals, we have a heart condition, that needs to be dealt with. In Romans, uh, Paul talks about this in Romans, in fact, he identifies the heart condition as a sin issue. In Romans five, he says, because of Adam's sin, everyone is guilty. Because of Adam's sin, everyone has fallen short. And I remember as a kid growing up, I thought, well, that's not quite fair, I wasn't even there, okay? Like, there was that whole tree thing, and like, yeah, I wasn't even anywhere around. Why am I guilty? for the sins of Adam. But the reality is, is even though I'm not guilty of his, I'm guilty of mine. And we are all fallen. We are all broken. We are all sinful in our nature. That's what we're born into. However, God, rich in mercy, has enough power, has enough love, has enough grace to change the narrative to change the narrative. And Paul is expressing this hope to the early church, to the Christians there in Rome. And there's this tension because a lot of them are Jews and if you understand anything about Old Testament Jewish law is that there's a lot of laws. There's just a ton of them, hundreds of them in fact and the people were breaking under the burden of the law. The Pharisees, the religious leaders would walk around and they were like kind of, they seemed to have this holier than thou attitude where they just, they were perfect in their knowledge of the law, their, their obedience of the law, their execution of the law, and that if you didn't do everything like they did, then you were not as good as they were. And Jesus comes along and he says, and, they, and people are asking, what can we do and he says your righteousness has to be above the experts, which by itself sounds even worse. It sounds, it doesn't sound like good news, it sounds like horrible news. Jesus, you just took the standard and you took it from here, which we already couldn't reach, and you put it up here. That was in the Sermon on the Mount, and he began to address issues of the heart. He began to address issues of the heart where he would say, it's, yeah, you've heard it's wrong to commit adultery. It's, it, let's elevate it. Even if, even if you look at someone with lust, that's an, an adulterous act. If you, you may not do anything to someone on the outside, but if you just hate them on the inside, if your heart has a, a, an attitude of hate towards someone, that's the same as murder. And so what he did, he took the, the, the acts or the, the requirements of the law and he elevated them to a heart level. And if we just left it there, it sounds like, well, we're doomed. But then the hope of the gospel is is that in Romans 5, it says, but you can be made right with God through faith, not through the acts or earning or digging yourself out of your sin. But if you just believe in faith, there's grace that covers your sin. So then the people are just like, great, no more rules, we can just live how we want and Jesus loves us and we get to go to heaven, free pass. And Paul's like, wait, wait, wait a second, wait, that's not exactly what I meant. And here's where we pick up our reading in verse six, or excuse me, chapter six. It says this. What shall we say then? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now I want to stop here because we need to define what sin is. Because there's potentially some confusion in this room when it comes to sin. There's a lot of different ideas about sin, definitions of sin, and in context it matters what kind of sin we're dealing with and so on your sermon guide uh, if you have the printed version or if you're following along, along online or on our app this is the first point that you can fill in what is sin and in this context I want to define sin this way sin is defiance we're talking about sins of defiance now, the reason I chose this word defiance is because I'm, I'm talking about a kind of sin where you know something is wrong and you do it anyways. You know it violates God's moral character, his moral standard, and you could obey if you wanted to, but you just choose not to, and you just violate it anyway. I've done it. You've done it. We've all been guilty of this sin of defiance. Now there are different faces of defiance where I, I see this not only in my own life but in people around me. Sometimes where there's people um, that just seem to just hate God. They just don't have any. Want, they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't believe in God. They just. Are antagonistic against Christians or, or people of faith in general. They're just an enemy of God. They have that closed fist of rebellion. And I would call this face of defiance rebellion. They just are an enemy of God. A second face of defiance might be someone who is self reliant. This is probably the one. This is probably the one way I have expressed defiance to God, where I've just been self reliant. Okay, I messed up. God didn't mess up, I messed up, so therefore, I have to figure out a way to fix it. I'm going to endure the punishment, I'm going, going to endure the shame, and then by some form of strength or willpower, I'm just gonna hopefully, w- over time, work my way out. Um, it's my fault, so I need to rely on myself to find freedom. And a lot of times this can lead to a trap where we realize over, after some time, we can't work ourselves out. And we desperately long for freedom, but because God's way seems too scary or because it requires us to trust him, we're going to rely on ourselves. Sometimes a third phase can uh, show itself when we just simply justify our sin. Well, it's not that big a deal. It's a cultural norm. Um, everybody's kind of doing it. Um, nobody really seems to, it, to care or it doesn't seem to really have that big of a consequence. And so we can fool ourselves into thinking that sin is somehow not a big deal by justifying. And I don't know about you, but I'm really good at making my, my mistakes look as good as possible, Okay. But all of these mindsets are wrong and Paul realizes and he knows that sin of defiance speaks to a separation from God. And by the way, he says later that sin leads to death. And that ultimate death is not just the passing away of our physical body, the the death that he's speaking about is the separation from God. And the warning that I wanna give to you today is that continuing in sin of defiance speaks to a separation from God. A willful defiance speaks to a separation from God. Now, there are other types of sin, and if you have your sermon guide, I put these in the notes on the back or at the bottom because I don't have time to go into all of it today, but I'll just touch on one. Let me just address the sin of ignorance, for example. So this is not us being stupid, this is just not knowing what we're supposed to do. Now, the first service didn't seem, they didn't seem to have a problem with this, but I seem to be the only one that's ever sinned without knowing it. Is anybody with me on that? Have you ever done something wrong and you didn't know it in the moment? Okay, like there's three of us. Okay, so the rest of you, defiance. Okay, no, I'm just joking. So, um, it just came to me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. So. I have done things that are wrong and I didn't know it in the moment. Or it was a, a quick reaction of just emotion or anger and I responded in a way and without thinking I just said or did something and maybe it took a few seconds for me to realize what I did or maybe it took a few weeks or months and through God's Holy Spirit or through friends that know me or what have you, there have been times when I've been made aware that I hurt someone or excuse me, did something that I shouldn't have done and I found out after the fact. Now, in that period of time, I was not willfully defying God and God's grace covers that. We're not responsible for what we don't know. But when the knowledge comes to my heart and, and for example, maybe I said something to my wife and the Holy Spirit tells me the next day, hey, you need to apologize to her for something. Okay, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that, God, you're right, now go apologize. No, I don't want to. (laughs) You could call that defiance, right? So now that I know what my next step is and I just refuse to do it, now it's no longer a sin of ignorance, now it's a sin of defiance. And we need to be careful of just continually defying God. Do I believe that one sin separates us for, no, I'm not saying that. But at the same time, a sin of defiance, continually just resisting God, close fist, my way, I'm gonna rely on myself, I'm gonna justify my sin, you're not the boss of me. Jesus says eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. How can we have a relationship with someone that we're resisting? Now, the ignorance that the Jews had and their question was, okay, so um, you're telling us we can't continue in sin. How about we just don't even read the Bible? Let's just not read it. We'll just live in ignorance. Ignorance is bliss. So. God's grace covers this ignorance thing, so let's just stay ignorant. It's too hard to read the Bible anyways. Those Pharisees, they have the books of the law memorized. In fact, we know now that they even knew the middle letter of the book of Isaiah, and they knew what number was assigned to that letter, and they would count to that middle letter, and if it was one number off, they would throw the whole scroll out and start recopying it over and over again. They were meticulous in their knowledge of scripture. And there are some people who are like, that's too much work. Let's just, let's just set it over there. God's grace has come. Let's just live in grace. But Paul says, no, you need to know what sin is because it leads to death. So let me pick up our reading again. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Or are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we have come to know Jesus Christ, why would we continue to resist his plan and will and call in our lives. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Were we buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus, as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He wants us to walk in newness of life. He doesn't want us to just be, okay, we had a good day, then a bad day, then a good day, then a horrible day, then then we were free, then we were back in bondage, then it was, in fact, he says it this way, I'm gonna skip through the next few verses, but skip down to verse 14, Paul writes this, for sin will have no dominion over you. You are under grace. Why does it matter if sin has power over us? Couldn't God just kind of be like, Okay, yeah, you prayed that prayer and, and, and you became a Christian and then, yeah, everything out from, out from here on out just, nope, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. I'll just, just ignore that. Well, here's the problem with that. And here's the warning Paul gives us if you skip down to verse 20 at the end of the chapter. Verse 21 what fruit were you getting at that time from the f- things which you are now ashamed? In other words, what, what were the results of your continuing sin? He said, for the end of those things is death. Verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And then we've probably heard this verse before, for the wages of sin is death, but the the free gift of God is eternal life. Here's what Paul was saying. There are sins that, and we tend to do this. We go, well, this sin, that's a bad sin. That's a really bad one. But this one, mm, it's not as bad. (laughs) That's kind of how, and we don't say that out loud, but we just, we sort of operate that way. Just a little bit of dishonesty, I wanna submit to you, it leads to a little bit of death when it comes to your integrity. A little piece of your integrity dies. A little bit of harshness or just whatever when it comes to your relationship, people might disrespect you a little bit it might damage some of that relationship. If you're selfish and self-centered and people all around you know it, you're all about me and you don't care about anybody else, a little bit of that friendship may die. A little bit of a a screen addiction, just scrolling endlessly. I've been there, done it. Apple came out with a screen time (laughs) that shows you how egregiously terrible we are on our phones hours and hours and hours a day. Well, that's not an addiction, but what's happening to our families and our relationships and our interactions with each other? I don't think it's a surprise that with the rise of social media, that depression and anxiety and suicide rates are up. I think there might be a correlation there. There's something in our society that's broken and we brush off little things. Well, those aren't explicitly sins in scripture. No, they may not be laid out in the New Testament or by Christ himself. But if he is looking into your heart and he's saying, hey, be careful how much time you spend here. Be careful who you hang out with here. Be careful what you watch here. Be careful how much time you spend at work. Be careful how much time you spend worrying about money. Those can become other gods and if we're in tune with him, then he will lead us to life. But if we brush those things off, there could be little deaths along the way. That's part of Paul's warning. The second part of Paul's warning is that and sin is serious. There, there are sins that, I mean, the 10 commandments, that's a pretty big list. Do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not, you, you know the list. Those things perpetuate, if we continue to do those things, it is a violation of not only God's law, but his character and his holiness. And sometimes I feel like we need to be reminded of the weight and glory and majesty and holiness of God. And if we truly want to honor him and we truly love him, why would we knowingly bring in sin to that relationship? Why would we wink at it? Why would we dismiss it as not a big deal? And if he wants to deal with it in our hearts, shouldn't we want to deal with it as well? And here's why sin is so serious. And sin is serious is because the the, the scripture teaches that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The penalty for sin is death. It is so serious, the only way it can be forgiven is if someone or something dies. And God knew and understood that in the Old Testament, but he didn't want his people to die, so he had them sacrifice a lamb or an ox in their place. Why, because we, I don't know about you, but I have a limited amount of blood supply, okay? I can't just lay down my life for every sin I commit. I'd run out of lives pretty quick. And so Jesus used the Old Testament sacrificial system to demonstrate that, hey, sin is serious, but I don't want you to die. And then Jesus Christ came with a new covenant and he took, he, he, he took the punishment once and for all on a cross, becoming the final sacrifice, the final lamb of God, so that no one would ever have to die ever again. And that is our hope, that is the reason why we stand here and sit here today worshiping a God who loves us because he has stepped into that space and he said, I love you so much that even though your sin requires death, I'm going to die. Even though your sin requires separation from God, I'll be separated from God. Exclaiming even that, in that moment on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He took on our sin and he took on my sin. Why, because the penalty of sin is serious, it's huge, and we do not have the currency to pay it. So he had to pay it. And if sin wasn't such a big deal, if we could overcome it, then why would Jesus have to die for that too? If we could somehow earn our way out of our guilt, if we could somehow buy our way out of guilt, why wouldn't that be acceptable? That would be a lot easier on Jesus. (laughs) But we can't do that we can't be sorry enough we can't work hard enough we can't be good enough we can't spend enough money give back to him enough it's not about that he's the only one who is enough and by the way sin is just more powerful than you and i on our own in our own strength we can't beat it we can't we can't live over over top of it we can't outlast it we can't free ourselves from it only the power of Christ breaks the power of sin in our life and he has done that work he was willing he was able and he is worthy to break the power of sin in our lives and so when I look across my own life and our church and our culture and I look at what the the solution to the problem is Jesus has done the work but we have a responsibility to respond and do something about it. And the only way I could think of to illustrate this is to use the illustration of an actual physical heart. Now, my family has some heart disease in our family history and so uh, my, my grandfather passed away from heart complications when I was a little kid. I had an uncle pass away, unfortunately when I was just 11 um, from a heart attack, totally unexpected. And my uncle had a heart attack when he was 35, but he survived. I'm 37 and I'm like, man, am I borrowed time here? I don't know. And so my dad always goes for a stress test like every few years, just based on his family history. So I'm not a cardiologist, but I know a little bit about what happens when there's problems in the heart. And there are times when things get blocked, valves or blood vessels get blocked in the heart, and that's what leads to a heart attack. And when you get a heart blockage and begin maybe a heart attack, there can be other symptoms. Of course, you might get chest pain, and that speaks to the fact that it could be your heart. But you're, you're numb, or your, your arm may also go numb. Your left arm might have some pain. You can have pain in your jaw, in your teeth, in your neck, in your back. And if you can imagine this, and you're having a heart attack, and you go into the ER, and the 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 doctor comes in and, you, and he says, okay, what's going on? Well, I think I'm having a heart attack. I have chest pain. My arm hurts, my neck hurts, my jaw hurts. And he goes, okay, so let's talk about your arm pain. Let's get your arm fixed first. Or let's address your jaw pain. Let's, let's make sure that you're comfortable. We don't want your jaw to hurt because that's really painful. You might say, what about my heart? Like, <laughs> let's address the root cause first. And I'm grateful for modern medicine and doctors who know this stuff because they can look at that and they're not fooled by the symptom of the arm. They're not fooled by the pain in the jaw or the neck. And they go, you know what? I've been to med school and I know what the real cause of your problem is. And I want to address the root cause. And we understand how important the heart is because it's the center of our circulation system. You could say it's the seat of life for our physical bodies. Well, I would submit to you that we have a a spiritual center as well, a spiritual heart as well. It is the fountain and the center of our thoughts, our passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, and endeavors. And Paul writes this in verse 17. And I want the guys to throw this scripture up on the screen because I believe that this is the key to our dealing with sin. Paul writes this in verse 17, he says this, but thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the, say it with me, heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. What he's saying here is you have experienced a transformation, not because of your performance, not because you've reached or attained some level of of obedience to the standard of the law, but you have looked at Jesus Christ. You have looked on him and you have trusted him for paying for your sins on, on that cross and you have become obedient from the heart. Are you gonna mess up? Probably, I mess up sometimes. I do and say things I shouldn't do. But you know what always happens to the person who is obedient from the heart? They quickly return to that love relationship they have with Jesus Christ and they say, what can I do to make it right? What can I, and, and he may say, just, just come on back. There may be nothing. Now there may be an apology, there may be some sort of Consequence, I'm not, I'm not saying everything is cookie cutter, clean and dry all the time. But the heart says, God, I want you more than anything else. And I wanna o- o- be obedient as I possibly can from my heart. To continue this illustration, if you could imagine um, that you did have a heart problem and you were diagnosed with the need for a heart transplant or even a a heart surgery, um, I don't know about you, but I could not perform that procedure on myself. I couldn't do that myself. So um, my first step would be to go actually meet with a surgeon and we should probably tip our surgeons better because you know, we can't do it ourselves, you know, anyways, um, so when I meet with a doctor, I wanna know he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> okay, if he's gonna cut my chest open and, and dig around in my heart, I wanna know that he knows what he's doing. And so I'm probably gonna get some referrals. I'm probably gonna make sure that he's working with a, an approved organization, a hospital, what have you. And then when we meet, I'm probably gonna have some questions to make sure that I can trust him because this is a big deal. Now, my knowledge and extent of this goes just as far as some medical shows on TV. So, um, I'm not saying this is exactly right, but I've actually seen reenactments where they take a beating heart out of the chest cavity. They're, the heart is actually in the surgeon's hands. They do the procedure, put it back in. I'm so thankful for modern medicine. I don't know how it works, but that's apparently how they do it. Spiritually, we need to come to the place of trust where we literally are okay with placing our heart in the hands of Almighty God saying you can do with it whatever you want because I trust you. And trusting that he has our best interest, he's not only more powerful and able and willing to do what's necessary and good, but he's going to to do it in the most healthy possible way. The second step after that surgery, assuming everything goes okay, you're gonna meet with your surgeon again and he's gonna give you some instructions. He's gonna say, eat this, eat this, eat this. Don't eat this, don't eat that. Don't eat this, don't eat that. Get out and exercise, do this, do this. Don't do too much, work up to it. And you know what's interesting, when I was doing my research for this sermon, I came across a plan, and there was not only a a nutrition guide and a meet with your doctor, like make sure you keep open communication with your surgeon, but they said, we also want you to meet with a team of people who can encourage you to continue to live healthy and eat right. Now, if you can imagine this, um, imagine I had heart surgery and he said, no more cheeseburgers. And I went straight out and the next week and was scarfing down cheeseburgers. <laughs> okay? You would say, hey, what's going on? Isn't that the reason why you ended up in there in the first place? Yeah, I can just have another surgery. No problem. <laughs> okay? Like, that doesn't make sense. And so that's why obedience is so important. When Jesus says, hey, all that lust, all that anger, all that bitterness, all that junk that I cleaned out of your heart, don't return to the same old acts. Don't return to the same old self. I want you to live in newness of life. And I'm giving you the strength and the desire and the ability to do that. And so that's why obedience matters. And so quickly, as I close, I just wanna give you four heart blockages that we need to allow God to deal with, but then there needs to be a response. First of all, we have selfishness or what I might say, self-centeredness. We need to allow Christ to come in and say, you know what, you're unhealthy because it's all about you. And we need to be willing to submit and to act the response to this is surrender. We need to be willing to surrender and say, Jesus, you are now the Lord of my heart and life. You've changed me and to live differently. It's not, all, it's not gonna be about me anymore. It's gonna be about you. Secondly, sometimes things happen. People say things, they do things and we get bitter. And there is bitterness that we don't know how to get rid of. We did a whole series called bury the hatchet just a a few weeks ago and I encourage you to check that out if you want more on this topic but bitterness is something that can destroy us and our response once Jesus Christ deals with that, our response to that is to demonstrate forgiveness. Did your dad really say that? Did your spouse really do that? Did your boss really make you feel that way? Yes, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, uh, uh, to minimize those things but our response, we can't, be responsible for what they did. We can only re- be responsible for what we can do, and our response moving forward is forgiveness. Now, thirdly, rejection. Sometimes labels can be put on us. People can call us names, especially when we're kids. I see this sometimes in youth group or or even in uh, our kids ministry. I can see kids. They're just laughing, or sometimes they're just brutal, and they can call people names or or make kids feel a certain way. And often those labels can hang on into adulthood. Maybe you've bought a label from a parent or from a friend or just from the enemy himself where he said you were worth nothing and you believed it or you're stupid or you're this or you're that. And you need to let Jesus Christ define who you are. We sang that song, we are in the father's house. I'm not gonna let failure define me because I'm gonna let my father in heaven define me. We need to return to who we are in Jesus Christ, who our creator says we are. And that's a whole nother sermon that I could get fired up about. But we need to run to the father and ask him who we are and, and accept his labels, not the labels of the people around us. And so our response is to immerse ourselves in the words of life, the words of scripture. And that kind of leads into the fourth one where we have just evil thoughts the Bible says that out of the heart come evil things. And sometimes our hearts can be polluted and we need to allow Jesus Christ to do cleansing, but then we need to be careful about what our intake is. Remember the nutritional guide after the heart surgery, don't eat this, eat this there may be some things that we're taking into our, our spiritual heart, into our mind. And we need to say, okay, no, no more of that. And I'm going to turn to instead, I'm going to fill it with this. Maybe it's a change in who you're hanging out with. Maybe it's a change in your entertainment. I don't know what it might be, but change your intake and find cleansing to close quickly to more practically or, or to more clearly help us deal with sin. What can I do? Well, I use the analogy of the heart surgeon. He can pray these things. Number three, what do I do? Invite the Holy Spirit to show me. Psalm 139 says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. We are not qualified to be our own heart surgeon. We're not qualified to be our own spiritual physician. We need to go to an expert and offer him our heart in trust and say, God search, search me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, David gives gives us another prayer to pray in Psalm 51. If there is a problem, he prays this prayer, God create in me a clean heart. We can't create our own righteousness but we can ask Jesus Christ to create in us a new heart. Create in me a new heart. And then finally, invite the Holy Spirit to fill me. Invite the Holy Spirit to fill me. Ephesians says, do not be filled with all kinds of debauchery. That's a big word for like self-indulgence and just pleasure, but be filled with the Spirit. The power of God is active and alive if we would just invite him in and pursue him on a daily basis and say here's my heart here's my life use it for your glory now your next step may not be fun it may be an apology it may be something I don't know I've been there where I've had to make things right and it's just not fun it's painful but I would encourage you that even though you don't feel like it Choices lead, feelings follow. Choices lead, feelings follow. You may have to make a difficult choice before you feel (laughs) good about it. The decision to surrender to Jesus Christ is one that no one I've met ever regrets. And there are times when we can feel so guilty and so feel ashamed that we we don't deserve God's grace. And that's another lie of the enemy that We just don't feel worthy and on some level that's true, but the lie is we can still partake in God's grace. We can still choose to trust him. We can still choose life in his name and if we would just do that, he would take those feelings and put them aside. So my encouragement to you today is to make a decision whether you feel like it or not to trust and whether you feel like it or not to obey. Now, we've been doing this at the end of each message, this series, and uh, it's a little difficult, and I'm not trying to pressure anybody into this or not, just be honest. But if you have made a decision to follow Christ, to give him your heart, to trust and obey, Would you just be willing to stand so we can honor you today and then we want to surround you with people and resources to help you on this journey. Has anybody made that decision today? Let's give these two in the back, three. And I want the rest of us to stand and we're going to be dismissed and I'm going to pray and just ask God to go with us in trust and in obedience for what he has done and for who he is. God, I thank you for those that are here today. And I pray um, that the same reality I've experienced, the fact that I can trust you and obey you leads to newness of life. God, you don't want us to live in bondage under sin, but you want us to have dominion over sin. And I pray that defiance um, would be pressed down, would be eradicated, and that what would take its place is surrender, love for you, um, all the things that you have described in this chapter, God, for us to live out. We wanna be obedient from the heart. And God, I pray that you would go with us today in that newness of life. Lord, help us to worship you and praise you and be a light to those around us that need to hear this same hope. And Lord, we just love you. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for your attention. I went a little bit long. You are dismissed. If you wanna know more about Next Gen, see us at the next steps wall.